If you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open up to Exodus chapter 15. This morning, we are just going to look at six simple verses. Over the past several months, we have uh, taken large portions, even in the past few weeks, and walked through chapters at a time. And this week, we are just simply going to slow down and we're going to stew on a couple of things that the Lord is doing in the life of the Hebrews, but also in the life of, of ourselves. Um, whenever I come to text often like this as a preacher, anything that deals with bitterness or unforgiveness, uh, repentance, those types of things, the Lord has a sense of humor and he will make you deal with those things within your own heart first. And so can I say that as we talk about bitterness and unforgiveness, this has been a miserable week for your pastor in many different ways. Because as we come before his word, he deals with us. And he changes us and he shapes us. And there are things that he wants to do perhaps in your life today that he did in my life this week and, and in previous weeks. And so we begin by reading the text starting in verse 22 where God's word says this. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and they found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. The water became sweet. In previous weeks, we have seen the Lord deliver the Hebrews from the heavy hand of Pharaoh. We have watched him week in and week out deliver them through these signs and these wonders, these miraculous things. And the reason why that's important to remember in this moment is because of what happens to the Israelites as they complain and they begin to grumble. And the heart of their complaint and the heart of their grumbling was really a failure for them to trust in the Lord that he had provided and that he had given them all of these things, delivered them out of the hand of Pharaoh. And so we saw plague and plague, sign and wonder leading up to last week where they walk across the Red Sea. And the Lord delivers them from Pharaoh and he wipes out all of Pharaoh's army. And, and here these uh, a million or so plus Hebrews witness these miraculous things, witness things that no one had ever seen. And yet they come to this place in chapter 15. Despite all of that, and they still fail to trust in the Lord. They still fail to believe that he wanted what was best for them and, and that he would provide for them. And so they travel from the Red Sea into the wilderness for three days. And, and if you walk around in the woods in the wilderness long enough, you'll inevitably get thirsty. And they look around and they can't find anything to drink. And so they begin to complain. They began to, to grumble, if you will, as the text says in verse 24, they grumbled against Moses. What shall we drink now? The text goes on in verse 25 and it says, there the Lord made for them a statue and a rule. And there he tested them saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, I am your healer. 
Then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees and they encamped there by the water. And so the Lord makes a promise. He says, if you listen to me and do what I say and follow and walk in obedience, then I won't do the things that you saw me do to the Egyptians. Oh yeah, by the way, in the midst of that, no more grumbling, no more complaining, just trust me. Trust that I will be the one that provides and I will be the one that heals. The reformer John Calvin rightly points out that in verses 23 and 24 and making the connection between the bitterness of the water and the complaints of his people that really were indicative of the condition of their hearts. They were a people who were not fully trusting in what God had done and even though they had seen these miraculous things and so the irony of this moment is they come to these places to satisfy their thirst and yet the thirst does not satisfy for it is bitter water. You know, we can wrestle with bitterness in lots of different forms. And perhaps today you've come in here and life hasn't gone your way or there are some hurts and maybe a, a lack of forgiveness or there is conflict in the relationships that you have within your life. And we can become embittered people. We can allow that bitterness to consume us. And what bitter, bitterness is, it's really a, a form of meditation that dwells on hurt rather than dwelling on the gospel. Bitterness is a form of hurt that we can't let go of and we can't move past and that bitterness begins to encompass all the things that we think and, and all the things that we feel. But in this moment, what we see according to the text is that bitterness does not come necessarily in the outward circumstances, but rather in the inward responses. How we respond to scenarios in our life, how we respond to situations in our life, and this bitterness can root up and it can grow bigger and it can become much more larger and it can become devastating to the heart of the Christian who is seeking to follow the gospel. But bitterness is, make no mistake about it, it is a form of meditation. Dwelling on the hurts. Dwelling on the wrong that exists. Now I know that for every person in this room today and watching online, all of us at some point have experienced levels of hurts. All of us have experienced levels of bitterness, even in our own lives. Someone that perhaps wronged you or, or didn't see you or didn't understand you or perhaps there was relational conflict at some point and that bitterness got dwelled upon and, and you meditated on it rather than focusing on something that was right and true and good. But I also know that for every person in this room, perhaps we have experienced different levels of hurt within our lives. And there are some of you that have gone through unimaginable things and the difficulty that comes with, with seeking to forgive the one who had offended you and, and the bitterness that exists there. It was a, a real wrong. It wasn't just a, a miscommunication or a misunderstanding, but there was physical trauma, if you will. <clears throat> there was real hurts that existed in those moments. And so you find yourself today in a place where you've become embittered towards the circumstance or towards the person. I want to offer just several things when it comes to forgiveness in particular. Because oftentimes when we fail to forgive or to see our conflict through the lens of the gospel, then we can become a very embittered people. 
that we can dwell on those things and those circumstances become much more than they actually are and our inward response pushes us further and further away from the Lord. Number one, I think this and believe that the scriptures teach this truth that forgiveness is not pretending that we're not hurt. It's not living in an imaginary world where we pretend that that something didn't happen. If we conceive of forgiveness as just pretending, then forgiveness becomes fake and and synonymous with being fake and not real and not authentic. Forgiveness becomes a form of of self-imposed just silencing of the issue and not being able to talk about what it was that happened. Simply stated, forgiveness is the very thing that allows us to express our hurt as hurt rather than anger. Oftentimes, our lack of forgiveness, it turns into anger. And we perhaps think at times that that we are righteous in our anger in these moments as the people of Israel complain to Moses, you've taken us into the wilderness only to let us thirst and, and hunger and want more. To not have our needs met and and provision given, forgiveness often is like that. It doesn't mean that we're pretending that we're not hurt, but when we forgive, we are not making a commitment not to feel whatever it was that we felt, but rather we are making a commitment about what we will do when the hurt arises and when we remember. It's not a pretending that it didn't happen, but rather it's what we do with it. When we feel those emotions and that truth and that experience, it it comes back into our heads and and we hear the the hurtful words replayed over and over and over again. What the Christian does in that moment is they they don't uh, disassociate from that in the moment, but rather they take that hurt and that pain and they see it through the lens of the gospel and they see it through the lens of their Savior, Jesus. But forgiveness is also not just letting someone off the hook. You see, when we let someone off the hook, we're saying that nothing else needs to be done. But when we choose to forgive and and rather not grow in our bitterness towards the person or more importantly to the Lord, what we're doing is, is that we are not necessarily concerned with that person changing and offering the forgiveness, but rather what we are concerned for in that moment is making sure that our hearts are the ones that have been changed. You see, whether the person ever actually acknowledges the offense that they made towards you or towards your neighbor or towards your friend is irrelevant. There's a place for that in their own journey and in their own walk with the Lord. But what we're doing when we offer forgiveness to those who have hurt us, who who have brought that bitterness in the midst of that, what we are doing and the reason why we forgive is not so much for them, but for us. So that the Lord can change us and the Lord can mold us and the Lord can make something new out of us. But I think also forgiveness oftentimes is something that is overlooked and we don't wish to do because we feel like forgiveness is making an excuse for someone else. If for some reason I forgive that person and, and, uh, and offer that forgiveness, that, that what it does is it downgrades what it was that, that, that happened to me or it minimizes the very thing that has happened to me. And you see, forgiveness is really not like that. It's not making an excuse, but rather acknowledging the wrong and the hurts. And the reason why we do that is so we don't grow up and become bitter. So we don't complain and and we don't grumble. 
You see, first and foremost, when we complain about a circumstance or a situation that we are enduring, we, we are complaining many times, oftentimes, not against the person, but rather against the Lord for allowing us to go through something like that. I find it interesting that the Hebrews in this moment, they, they come to Moses and they, and they ask Moses, where is the water that we are to drink? But what they are in essence doing was not necessarily complaining to Moses, who was their mediator at that moment, but rather what they were doing was they were complaining to the Lord. You've done all these wonderful things in our, our lives. You've set us free from the hand of Pharaoh. Now we've, we're wandering around in the wilderness and we're thirsty and we're hungry and we can't find anything that satisfies. Forgiveness is not making an excuse for someone. And forgiveness is also not forgetting. Oftentimes we believe that we, we wish it to be possible that we would forget our most painful experiences. And I think sometimes well-meaning Christian counselors would, would tell us at times that, that if you're forgiving, then you're being, you, you, you forget it and you learn to forget it. But, but it, for those who have been harmed and, and significantly harmed, it is almost impossible to forget our most painful experiences in this life. We, we cannot. And it is difficult to look past the hurt. And it doesn't mean that, that we believe the gospel any less or, or don't believe in the sufficiency of God's word. Forgiveness is not necessarily forgetting. It is rather not trying to unwrite the thing that happened in our past, but rather acknowledging the hurt and running to our father and letting him tend to our hearts and to our needs. It's not entrusting care into someone's life who has forsaken that care. Forgiveness is also not necessarily trust, but rather learning to trust. Oftentimes we believe this myth or this lie that if I just forgive the person, then that means that the trust is going to be restored and, and it will be there. No, forgiveness biblically, <coughs> excuse me, in the way of the scriptures is really about a process of rebuilding that trust in the life of the relationship. And sometimes depending on the circumstance, it's quicker and sometimes it's slower depending on what happened or what took place. Forgiveness is learning to trust. But when we go before a person and we go before the Lord and, and we take our complaints to him and, and he listens to us and he, and he hears what it is that we are saying and we let him cultivate and we let him shape our hearts. So that ultimately we don't get to the place like the Israelites where we see signs and wonders over and over and over and over again. And we see the, the seas part. And we see the, the, the hand of the Lord in that moment. He comes down and he, he completely annihilates the most powerful army and kingdom in all of the known world. Only to get to the other side of the Red Sea and to grumble and to complain a little bit more. The people of Israel, the Hebrews in this moment had forgotten that already. Sometimes I'll hear people make statements like, if I could just see some of these things that, that the Hebrews saw, or if I could be, be, be present when Jesus was performing these miracles in the gospel, then, then wouldn't I be able to believe in that moment? And wouldn't my, my lost friend be able to see in that moment? One of the lessons of the Hebrews in Exodus is that even though you see those miraculous things, it doesn't always mean that you will believe and you will trust. And so they grumbled and they complained. They grumbled and they complained. 
going before Moses and the Lord speaks back to Moses and he answers them tenderly. If you don't, if you do these things I ask you to do and walk in faithfulness, then I won't afflict you with the things that I afflicted the Egyptians with. And and you'll be spared in those moments here in that moment is this conditional promise to them. You do these things and walk in faithfulness and trust me that I will provide for your every need that I will give you exactly what you want. And I won't just turn the the bitter water into just normal water, but I'll make it taste sweet. I'll make it taste even better than it was before that. I think that promise applies to God's people in the sense of when we walk in a place of faithfulness before Him, When we choose not to become bitter in our hearts towards our circumstances and towards other people, doesn't the Lord always in his goodness, doesn't he always in his faithfulness make the water even sweeter? There's something about walking faithfully with our Lord. There's something about being obedient to the things that he calls us to be obedient to. And so that when he sends us out into the wilderness for our sanctification, that he would grow us and make us into the people that he wants to be, that if we would just for that moment to keep our eyes and our attention and our affection upon him, then he'll turn the bitter water into something sweet. I know that for many of you here in this room, that's the testimony and the legacy of your faith, is it not? To keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, and and to allow him to take the, the bitter circumstances of your life, the difficult circumstances of your life, and to make them sweet again. But it's by trusting him and by walking with him. It's by choosing to forgive and and choosing to move forward and to trust faithfully the Lord our God and to believe that he wants the very best for for this church and he wants the very best for you and and we believe him and we take him at his word. This past weekend, we had cousins from my wife's side of the family. She's got four other siblings and we hosted a birthday party for all the cousins. One of the cousins, his request was, uh, they lived down in New Braunfels, that his request was that he would, they would come up to, to Fort Worth and that all the cousins would come over to Uncle Drew and Aunt Haley's house and we'd have a big sleepover and, and maybe go catch a baseball game. And so this weekend they came over. And Friday night, it was about midnight and I had all the cousins in the living room and there's nine or 10 of them and they're all on cots and pillows and blankets. And it was about midnight, a little bit past that. And I went back into the living room and I said, now listen, uh, every head stays on a pillow. Nobody goes outside of the house. Stay in your blankets. And if I hear one peep out of any of y'all, and I'm coming back in here and I pointed to Judah, who was the oldest, biggest cousin. And I said, if I hear one peep out of any of y'all, I'm shaving Judah's eyebrows off when he goes to sleep. <laughs> Judah looked at me for a moment and he said, uh, Uncle Drew, he said, what does peep mean? I said, peep, make a noise. I said, one noise, it's time to go to bed, boys. Well, then one of the cousins was over off on the side and he's the, the silent and the quiet one, but he's the one that you always have to keep an eye on. You never know where he is. You don't know what drawer he's going through and what he's pulling out of the pantry. He's just always there lurking, doing something where nobody knows. And, and he looks up at, at me and he says, um, 
after I apologized to Judah and I said I was just kidding and, and explained to them sarcasm and uh, he was trying to understand because he looked deeply concerned and then Lucas, one of the cousins off on the side, he said, uh, well, Uncle Drew, he said, um, if you need somebody to do that, he goes, I can shave Judah's eyebrows too. <laughs> he said, in fact, I've, I've shaved my own eyebrows before. So I gently told my wife, make sure that the living room uh, camera is on and we are going to have to watch Lucas all night long because we don't know what he's going to do. But in the moment of that interaction, we, we laughed about it later, but, but when you look over at Judah, the one that I was joking with and being sarcastic with, Judah had a look of sheer terror on his face because he knew that his younger cousin was certainly capable of something like that. And so I pulled little Lucas off to the side and I grabbed big Judah and I brought him over there and I grabbed them both by the arms and I said, no one, and I mean no one, is shaving anyone's eyebrows off tonight. <laughs> Looked at Lucas, I said, Lucas, do you, do you understand? He said, yes, sir, I do. Judah, do you, do you understand? You will wake up in the morning and you will still have your eyebrows, I can attest to that. Do you understand? Yes. He said, but Uncle Drew, are you sure Lucas won't try to do that? And there was this rift in the relationship. So much so that when I went back into the room and came back out, Judah had moved his cot over about four feet further away from Lucas. And there was conflict that existed there. There was this moment of this lack of trust that existed within Judah's heart, first towards me and then certainly towards his younger and smaller yet formidable cousin who he knew was, was quite capable of doing the very thing that he said he was doing. And I reassured Judah several more times that night, well into about 1 a.m. and 1.30, that it was going to be okay to trust, to not be fearful, and to not complain. And you know what? He, he eventually, he did. He got there. But I thought how appropriate was that in that moment that I was the cause of the turmoil in that moment. But yet Judah entered into this process of, of trying to trust and, and trying to believe and to take me at my word and to take his, his cousin at his word. But isn't this how we are in our relationship with the Lord? Don't we at times just need the gentle reassurance over and over and over again about the good and the kind intentions of our God? Amen. To look back in our past and to remember all the ways that he has been faithful to you faithful to your families and, and faithful to our church, faithful in, in your life today, do you know that, that that same faithfulness exists right now in this very moment? To trust and to be reassured that, that he is good and that he is kind and to not become embittered and to believe him when he says he wants the best for you. I don't know what your circumstance is today or where you find yourself on that spectrum, I don't know if you're having a hard time trusting in his provision for your life. I don't know if you're here today and, and perhaps you're struggling in, in some relationships and have become embittered over that or there is uncertainty within your future. Friend, can I remind all of us here in this moment that not one person in this room is guaranteed tomorrow. That the only certainty that we have is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believing him that he is who he says he was. And as God takes that very bitter water and he makes it even sweeter, 
Jesus tells us in John's gospel, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from him. That the promise of the goodness of God that exists all the way in Exodus 15, that it exists here now in this moment through Christ. And so we believe him and we call upon his name. And so here's how I want to end this morning. I believe that there are some of you here today that perhaps are struggling with bitterness in your own heart. That maybe life has not gone the way that you had hoped it would go. Maybe you're in a circumstance right now that you didn't see yourself in 12 months ago or or perhaps 10 years ago, but, but you are precisely where you are and God knows exactly where you are. And can I say to you and to plead with you this morning that to not meditate and to stew on that wrong, but rather to look to the hope of the gospel, the hope that is found in Christ. The Bible says that first to be right with God, we call upon his name. We, we believe that he was sufficient in his death to atone for our sins. And, and so we believe that and we call upon his name and, and we ask him to save us and to redeem us and, and to reconcile us to the Father. But then once we understand that truth and we walk closely with him, the tendency is that we then begin to drift in a different direction slowly but surely and we begin to move away from the goodness of his word and the goodness of his gospel. And when we stew in spirits and in rhythms and seasons of bitterness, what it ultimately does is it takes us further and further away from the hope that we find in his word. When we choose not to forgive and we choose to stay mad and we choose to to stay upset, it brings us further and further away from the Lord, not closer. And so here's what I want us to do. I'd like us to just spend the remainder moments praying and asking God that he would bring to mind any, any places of bitterness in our hearts, any places of unforgiveness that we perhaps have that exist right now in this moment and that we would let God through his spirit gently and, and kindly that he, would, that he would change us. Maybe you're here today and, and you got drugged by one arm to come to church and, and maybe you're in this place of complaining or grumbling and, and, and all of those things. Can we just pause for just a moment and just say, Lord, would you, would you tend to my heart? Would you, would you change me? Would you make me new? Would you give me a new and a fresh spirit?